Well, good morning. It is good to be able to be with you this morning and hear from God's Word together. As we were reminded last week and from Hebrews chapter 4, that God's Word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so we turn our attention to that powerful and living word again this morning. So please take out your Bibles and turn to Psalm 42. If you happen not to have your Bible this morning, there are copies available for you in the pew rack. Again, Psalm 42 is our text for this morning. And out of reverence for God's holy inspired word, I invite you to stand if you are able. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist writes this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word, your holy word. And God, as we hear your word proclaimed this morning, God, I pray you would help me to be faithful to the text and to communicate clearly. And God, I pray that you would give us all eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love your word and help us to be attentive to it and to do what it says to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. By way of introduction to the, to the book of Psalms, uh, which happens to be broken up into 150 chapters, what I want to say about that is it really shows you the gamut of human life, experience, and emotion. Now, scholars agree that the book of Psalms actually is broken up into about five books or five sections. Psalm 41 ends that first section, and our psalm for today begins the second book, the second section. Hear what Psalm 41 says to end that section. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. It is a powerful doxology and a fitting way to end that first section of the Psalms. But then we move to Psalm 42. And the tone of this psalm is very different. You see, Psalm 42 is a psalm of lament. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what a lament is, let me just quickly define it for you. It is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. In fact, there's a whole book entitled 
lamentations in Scripture. So the idea of lamenting and having lamentations is not a foreign concept to God's Word. Originally, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 actually would have been read together as one psalm. But for today's purposes, we're going to focus in on Psalm 42. Now, one final word about Psalm 42 before we actually dive into the text. I want to mention that structure. It has what's called a chiastic structure. And in that, what that simply means is the ideas are repeated. So think of it like a hymn. You have a verse, then you have a chorus. You sing the first verse, then you sing the chorus. You sing the next verse, and then you sing the chorus. And so this is important to know because even in the structure of the psalm itself, you're going to see a picture of human life and human emotion. Some days we are longing for God and are just so filled with joy and hope. And in a short moment, we are filled with anguish. And then we return to hope. And then we return to anguish. Now as we look at today's psalm, we're going to look at the sections of lament together. So verses 1 through 4 and then 6b through verse 10. And then we're going to look at the sections of the, of the refrain of hope here in 5 and 6a and 11. And though these sections are divided with laments and hope, you're still going to see bursts of hope, even in the sections of lament here. So pay attention to that as we go through the text. And so we begin with the laments in point one. In the midst of difficult times, yearn for and remember God. Now the opening verses of Psalm 42 paint a very vivid picture for us. Listen to the verse again. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now, for many of us, when we read that verse, we close our eyes and we picture something out of a nature documentary. In fact, the narrator's soft and quiet voice comes on the scene and says something like, And now, we carefully watch as the deer and its family drink from the stream. It raises its head for just a moment, twitches its ears, and quickly returns to drinking the cool, refreshing water. But unfortunately, that's not the picture we actually see here. What is the deer doing? The deer is panting. Now, when you think of panting, is it calm? Is it peaceful? No. When a person is panting, it usually means that they're in distress or they're uh, experiencing some exertion there. It is not an attractive thing to watch something or someone pant, is it? They are heaving in and out with every breath, and they show they are in need of something. Whether it is air or, or water, they are desperate. And the psalmist is desperately in need of something. The psalmist is expressing grief, and in his grief, he is longing for what he needs. What is it that he longs for? More like, who is it that he longs for? He longs for God. His soul is panting for God, who is the one who is necessary for existence. In the midst of his sorrow, he desires God more than anything. Notice he repeats this same idea in verse 2 when he says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There is a real need in his life for God. Specifically, he thirsts after the living God. Now when we hear that, we look at that and think, maybe he's given a distinction here between the one and true and living God that he's talking about as opposed to all these other gods who are false idols and worthless and are dead. And while certainly we know that that idea is true, the context of the passage leads us to believe that when he says the living God here, he is referring to God as the source of life. 
the name for God here used is Elohim. It's the same name used in Genesis chapter 1 when God creates everything. And so it reminds us that God is the creator and therefore by He is the source and sustainer of our lives. In verse 8b, he goes on to call God the God of his life. He sees God as the beginning, the middle, and the end of his life. And so his desire is to be in the presence of God during this difficult time. He even asks the question in verse 2b of, when shall I come and appear before God? What is he asking? How can he go and appear before God? What we see here is that he has a desire to go to the temple and to worship. And why is this his response? Because we have to think back to what the temple represented. It represented the presence of God among his people. And since he desires to be in God's presence, he desires to worship God with God's people. And we're going to see this idea just a little bit later too. And however, though, in verse 3, his expression of desire turns to a hopeless picture of torment and why he desires God so desperately. Here we see that the sustaining life a food for his life is tears, night and day, and these tears of sorrow. Now imagine the anguish, hurting emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually, with no break in the pain. That's what we see here in the psalmist. And naturally, we want to ask, what is causing this pain? What could cause so much pain in one person? And he answers that question. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Here is the source of the psalmist's anguish. There is someone who is taunting him and questioning the presence and love of God in his life. So who are they? Are they like the ones in Baptist churches when someone is upset and they go to the pastor and, you know, they are upset about something? When in reality, it's probably one person or maybe a group of people being divisive. Or is it like when you and I say, well, you know what they say? Some random group of people that we don't really know who they are. But here the psalmist tells us who they are. Look down at verse 10 with me, please. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Ah, the psalmist is facing attacks of enemies, and their one weapon is a question. Where is your God? To the one who is suffering, that is a devastating and damaging question. But if we're honest, when we are suffering, we are tempted to ask the same question. Where is God in the midst of my affliction? Now, theologically speaking, we know that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. You know, the question that we're really asking when we ask about our affliction and God's presence is, why isn't God doing anything about this? Why isn't God putting an end to my hurt? But then we answer that biblically in Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And so we know that God has a purpose in our suffering. But for many of us, we still feel as if God is absent. We can have those feelings. And so how do we combat those feelings of abandonment? Look to verse 4 as the psalmist gives us an answer. These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Now you may be thinking, how does that combat feelings of abandonment? I'm so glad you asked. 
You see, the Christian life in good times and in bad times cannot be rooted in how we feel. Our feelings can lead us astray. And when we're tempted to question God and doubt His presence, what we need to do is to remember God. We need to remember who He is and what He has done. Look back to point one. In the midst of difficult times, yearn for and remember God. What we've seen here is that the psalmist has yearned for God and now he goes to remember God. And how does he remember God? His memory draws him back to what he knows. And what he knows is worship. Now certainly it can appear that maybe the psalmist, as he reflects back, is having mixed emotions there with sorrow and joy. Kind of like when we say, oh, the good old days. We look back on them fondly, but if we're truthful, it can make us a little sad at times that things aren't like they used to be. But that being said, ultimately what we see here with the psalmist is that he looks on the past to spur on hope in his heart. Here in verse 4, the psalmist recounts the times that he would go and lead to temple worship. For many of us, we can think that Old Testament worship probably was just a bunch of rituals that would have been boring and repetitive and lacking in joy. However, the Old Testament saints would have come into worship joyously and with great delight. Why is that? Again, it was because of what worship represented. It was coming into the presence of God. Worship focused on remembering who God is and what He had done for them. Worship was rooted in truth and what was known and not what was felt. If we judge worship on how we feel, I'm afraid we're going to miss the point. That's why you and I gather each Lord's Day to worship together because in that it serves as an opportunity for us to glorify God together as we remind each other of the glorious truths of who God is and what He has done, His mighty deeds. And naturally, I think focusing on the knowledge of God should then lead us to feel something in worship. But we must be careful not to let what we feel inform what we know, whether in life, or in worship. That can lead us away from the truth. So let's pause and ask a practical question of ourselves. When you're hurting, depressed, life is falling apart, what do you desire? To what or to whom do you turn? Do you desire to come and worship with the body of Christ when life is messed up? A great indicator of our heart and of our faith is what we do in the midst of trials. Many times, often, for us, we pull away from God and we pull away from His body. At least we try to. I hate to use a personal illustration here and I hesitate doing so, but as pre when preparing for this sermon, God kept reminding me of something He did in the life of our family. Understand, I speak to you today as one who's here to proclaim God's truth, which stands on its own. And at the same time, I stand before you as one who has experienced the truth of God and what we're talking about today in a very real and practical way as well. On Thursday, November 16th, 2017, Tori and I heard the words that no expecting parent wants to hear. We cannot find your baby's heartbeat. In the moments that followed, we were faced with much heartache and many decisions. But this story really isn't about us. It's about what God did in the midst of our child's death. Instead of allowing us to pull away from Him and pulling away from the body of Christ, He drew us near. And He drew us near to the body of Christ. In the midst of our suffering, He is the one that gave us the desire to pray. 
and to read God's Word and to be with the brothers and sisters in Christ here. We could have stayed home that Sunday that immediately followed our miscarriage, but God, in His mercy, gave us the strength and desire to be in worship with you. And as we gathered in worship, as God's children, we prayed together, we heard God's word together, we sang together, and in that we were encouraged in the gospel of Christ. We were reminded to lean into God and to His body in the midst of despair because in God there is hope no matter the circumstances. Even in the midst of lamenting, in the lamenting that we see in Psalm 42, we see bits of hope. Verses 5 and 6 say the psalmist pauses his lament and poses a couple of questions to himself. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? After remembering the temple worship and the joy of God's presence, it still appears that he feels downcast and out of sorts. It's confusing for him to know what he knows about God and still feel the same way that he feels right now. But I'm thankful for this passage because that is how life can be. You and I need to recognize that we can still feel the inner turmoil as believers, knowing what we know about God, knowing the truth of God. But we cannot let that discourage us from dwelling on the truth. Now the psalmist asks these questions and then he responds to himself. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. It's like a little short breath of hope in the midst of the storm. And as I mentioned before, we're going to handle this section a little bit later, but it bears reading now because we see that's how life is. And that's how the psalmist is. He laments, then he hopes in God. He laments, then he hopes in God. He's up and he's down. He's everywhere. So then he turns back in 6b to remember God to combat his downcast soul. He writes, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and of Mount Mizar. His memory takes him to significant places in the life and history of Israel. These places served as memorials of the mighty acts of God. For example, Israel crossed the Jordan to do what? To possess the land. So we see the land of Jordan. Hermon is mentioned because in that book of Joshua, he takes the land and it is mentioned there. Now Mount Mizar is not mentioned anywhere and is not necessarily a disclosed location for us that we know, but it shows us in the context of the text that it was an important part of Israel's life. And so he uses these landmarks to try to remind himself of God. But as he does this, and he hears the Jordan, he, he takes that and the water imagery comes back to mind in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. When we first looked at this, recall that he was using water as a positive thing. It was what he needed to revive his life. And now he has switched and the image of water is used in a different way. In this verse, the idea of water represents the nature of the tumultuous life. It is the image of somebody being tossed to and fro by the waves. They are out to sea and the waters are agitated, unforgiving and constantly bashing the person. They no sooner get up than they are knocked right back down. They're up and then they're knocked right back down. 
And it causes an overwhelming sense of distress and panic. That is what the psalmist experiences. And that's what you and I experience in life. But in the storm-tossed life, we still see God's faithfulness. The psalmist even recognizes this. He recognizes that God is present and still at work in his life. He shows us by saying, by day, in the next verse, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. God is not absent from the psalmist, as one might think. Notice the tears of verse 3 of the day are met in the day with the steadfast love of God. Now, the steadfast love of God is a tenderness towards the writer, but it's no weak tenderness. It is a compassion and love that is firm and unwavering. It is rooted in the covenant that God has with His people, that He will be their God and they will be His people. It is a love that no circumstance can change and no circumstance can weaken. Why? Because it is God's love. It is the love of God. Likewise, the tears of the night are met with a song and a prayer to God. What is this song? It is the song of the redeemed. Psalm 40, verse 3. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord. This song in despair is one of praise. It is one to praise God for who He is and what He has done. And what He has done is brought forth salvation. Since God is the only one who can save, the psalmist prays to the living God, the God of His life. And when he prays to the God of his life, I think he means so in the sense that God is the source of his physical life. But he also means it, that God has given him new life and new hope. But again, even as he's just spoken about this provision and care of God, he still feels distant from God. Verse 9a, I say to God, my rock. Well, hold on, I want to stop there. Here we see a picture of God as a rock. Now, when we think of large rocks, we're thinking of these big boulders. Rocks don't typically move. They're firm, deeply planted. You can trust them to be there. You can trust that they are steady and sure. And so throughout Scripture, you see God constantly referred to as a rock, especially in the Psalms. This should give us some hope. And so you expect a next little glimmer of hope coming. I say to God, my rock, we are ready for it. He's just spoken of the Lord's provision. He's called God his rock. But here's what we get. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? So when he speaks to God, his rock, he focuses on his feeling of distance and abandonment. Why has God forgotten him? Why does the pain of the enemy keep persisting? The attacks of the enemy are so persistent. Notice what it's like. It's like a deep infection in the bones. And with every throbbing pain, God's love and His presence are called into question. Whether we realize it or not, we face attacks of the enemy on a regular basis. Who are our enemies? Now, I want to be clear. Our enemies are not those of flesh and blood. 
our enemies are the ones that Paul describes in Ephesians when he calls them the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So who are our enemies that fit that description? Because we're in spiritual warfare. And warfare means what? We have enemies. Satan. Satan is the epitome of opposition to God, and he is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. Because we see the effects of sin in our world and in our lives, whether it's our own sin or the sins of others. Death, sickness, they are our enemies. And all of these enemies are taunting us and calling into question the presence and love of God. Think about our brothers and sisters around the world who are in Christ and they are being persecuted and facing enemy attacks daily because of their faith. The idea of the attack of the enemy in Psalm 42 is not an abstract idea. It is one that is a reality in the life of every believer. And when we face these enemy attacks, are we so different than the psalmist? If we're honest, do we not sometimes think that God has abandoned us and feel that way? Do we not question God sometimes? I mean, as believers, we know God, His character, what He can do, what He has done, what He, what he will do. And yet our hearts can lead us to look at God in light of the circumstances rather than looking at the circumstances in light of who God is. So back to the psalmist's question. Has God forgotten him? I mean, God's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows who the psalmist is. He knows where he is. He knows what he's going through. I mean, the psalmist right here is writing Scripture. But the psalmist isn't referring to an intellectual knowledge. What the psalmist is referring to is that he feels neglected, abandoned by God. So then the real question is, does God neglect his children? Think about Jesus on the cross. In his dying breath, he's, he's dying on the cross and he quotes from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did God abandon Christ, his one and only son? In Luke chapter 23, you know, before Christ dies, he speaks to the Father. And he commits his spirit into the Father's hands. If God had abandoned Christ, why would he trust himself to God with his dying breath and his spirit? God did not forget Christ. He bore the punishment for my, our sin, and, and that was necessary. In fact, God remembers his one and only Son and has given him a name above every name as we see in Philippians 2 but even beyond that too God not only remembered his son but God remembers and cares for those for whom his son died hear what the apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 31 through 39 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how he will also with us him give us graciously all things who shall bring any charge against God's elect it is God who justifies who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that he was who was raised who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, 
nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We clearly see that God, who gave His only Son to redeem us, does not forget nor neglect His children. And this gives us hope. Which brings us to our second and final point. Hope in God. Again, verses 5 and 6a, 11, are the refrain of Psalm 42. In the midst of lament, hope breaks forth. The psalmist writes those questions. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. The psalmist begins the refrain of hope by asking two questions, which we mentioned earlier. But he isn't asking for information. He already knows what to do here. The questions of why his soul is in distress are meant to encourage him to look to God. He's been reminding himself of truth throughout this passage, and yet he is still discouraged. This leads him to respond to his own questions and doubts and fears by simply saying, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation, my God. Now the verb in the Hebrew here for hope is an imperative, which means this is a command. The psalmist, in essence, is commanding himself to hope in God. And the word for hope used here is actually and literally the word for wait. We saw this in the call to worship in Psalm 27. The idea of hope is translated uh, together with the idea of waiting because they're so closely connected. As we look forward and we hope, there's waiting involved. And as we wait, there's hoping involved. But when we hear the word hope, we tend to use it and think of it as this idea of I hope something will happen, a desire that may or may not happen. Wishful thinking, as it were. But biblical hope is more certain than that. Listen to this. Biblical hope is desire rooted in the truth of the character of God and is proven past acts as it looks to the future fulfillment of His promises. Let me repeat that. Biblical hope is desire rooted in the truth of the character of God and His proven past acts as it looks to the future fulfillment of His promises. Biblical hope is looking back on the truth and looking forward in light of that truth. And this is exactly what we see in the psalmist's words. He is looking to the future with certainty, knowing that he is going to again praise God. That desire is going to be fulfilled and happen. How does he know he will praise God? Because he knows time and time again, God has proven himself and brought salvation to his people. Whether crossing the Red Sea, the defeat of Israel's enemy, the Passover, ultimately Christ on the cross, God's faithfulness has been proven time and time again in the lives of his people. God is the psalmist's salvation and God. He is the one who has delivered him and will deliver him from the enemy. But this does not just apply to the psalmist. This applies to you if you are in Christ. God has delivered you from your enemies and will deliver you from your enemies because He has delivered us and saved us from His wrath. He has saved us from hell. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from death and from all of our enemies. Our our hope is the hope of eternal life with Christ Jesus. Through the gospel, Christ, the Messiah, 
is the ultimate example of God's fulfilled promises. Now you may be thinking, yes, 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 I agree, amen, I I agree with everything you're saying. But practically, how do I hope in God? So I'm going to address believers in the room first. Because this gathering primarily is for believers to gather and worship. So I want to start with you. When we hope in God, what we do is first, regardless of the circumstances, preach the truths of Scripture to ourselves over and over and over again. When we do this, we are looking at the objective truths of God's Word. We are looking back who He is, what He has done. This gives us confidence that God will do what He says He will do. The second thing that we do to hope in God is that regardless of the circumstances, so in good times, bad times, we spend time in prayer. Praising Him for who He is. Thanking Him for what He has done. Confessing our sins. And being honest about our hurts and our wants and our needs. Those two things provide perspective, an eternal perspective in the midst of a storm. But that starts by doing so on a regular basis in times of peace. Now since I am sure there are some unbelievers in the room this morning, I'm I'm now going to talk to you. You hear the command to hope in God. But the reality is, you cannot do it apart from Christ. Let me tell you how Paul describes you in the book of Ephesians. He describes the unbeliever in this way. Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. So I say to you, unbeliever. To hope in God means you must first place your faith and trust in Christ. And I will tell you that the hope of the gospel lies in the fact that God who promised is faithful. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord and confess with our mouths that God raised him. I mean, we, if we believe those things, you will be saved. And the confidence that we have in it is because God is the one who promised salvation for those who believe. Then and only then can you hope in God and realize what we've been talking about today. The psalmist hope is in God, and what he longs for and is sure of is that he will praise God again. How can he be so sure? How can we be so sure? Well, because the Holy Spirit, through God's Word, reminds us of Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and return. These are reminders of who God is, what He has done, what He can do, and what He is going to do, what He will do. So I want to leave you with a passage from Revelation chapter 21. So I invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 21. And we're going to be in verses 3 through 6. And as we're turning there, I want to use this to show how we can hope in God, knowing that we're going to praise Him again, who is our salvation, our God. And this is for the believers, if you are here. We're going to be in chapter 21, verses 3 through 6 book of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be more, no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also, he said, Write this down, for these are trustworthy, words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega and the beginning and the end. So I say to you today, Hope in God. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your words. The words of life, the words of hope. Lord, these words do not promise us a good life. These words do not promise us an easy life, God. But what they do promise us is that we have a good God. We have a God who cares. A God who is there and ever-present in our time of trouble and in our time of joy. Father, that is you. And so I pray for our time now, God, as we respond to your word, help us to respond in faith to what we have heard in your word, that we might glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.